As people in New Hampshire began getting vaccinated to protect themselves against COVID-19, the statewide mask mandate expired on April 16th, and public schools were ordered to offer an option for in-person learning five days a week, starting on the 19th. But as we moved forward, I still wondered, who might be getting left behind? And what do the health experts who deal with preteens and teens have to say? What have they been seeing when it comes to the mental and physical well-being of our youth? I also wanted to know, do our doctors recommend vaccinating teens over the age of 16? Will that help? My name is Kimberly Hawes. Join me as we dig deeper into these issues and more during our second podcast in this Wellness Connection series produced by the Community Alliance for Teen Safety in Derry. In March, the University of New Hampshire released a study which showed that even prior to the pandemic, more than 50% of children in high-risk populations across the nation were not receiving needed behavioral health services. Knowing that there has been a demand here, I reached out to the New Hampshire Psychiatric Society in Concord to see what they had to say on the topic. I spoke with their president, Patrick Ho. Let's start by talking a little bit about these challenges. What specific challenges are you finding that preteens and teens are facing here in New Hampshire during the course of this pandemic? Yeah, that's that's a really good question too. Just because um, I think that the types of mental health challenges that uh, teenage and and preteen kids are facing during the COVID nineteen pandemic really are are more and and different than what was around before the pandemic. Uh, I think one of the big challenges, and, and certainly something you've alluded to already, is just um, the possibility of achieving connectedness with peers and and family members um, during this time. So it's definitely harder to feel connected. Um, and easier to feel isolated at the same time. Um, so hanging out for kids is, is going to look very different than it used to. Um, and I think it can be really hard for, um, for kids to adopt social or adapt social connectivity um, to a world where we really need to be conscientious of maintaining some physical distance too. Um, and this was just really a, a quite a big turnaround for for a lot of um, a lot of us kids and, and adults alike. Um, and of course, we have to consider too that um, that some kids, some teenage, uh, some teenagers, and some preteens um, may not have the means to to have the technology or the hardware um, needed to really. Uh, adapt their social connectivity um, practices to um, what's happening during the pandemic. So I, I think that's definitely one challenge, but another challenge has um, also been the, the changing set of rules and, and roles um, for kids and adults as well. So uh, the pandemic has been marked by, I, I think, just really great uncertainty. And, and that can be really scary for um, kids and adults again, but the rules just keep changing and, and kids may have to turn on a dime and adapt their education or day-to-day or -day schedule um, to that changing set of rules with very little notice. And um, roles are different too, of course. Um, and so kids maybe aren't just learning from teachers and, and professional educators, um, but parents may be taking on a more active role in the education of, of kids. And, and maybe if some kids have um, younger siblings too, then, then they might be in, in that same boat as well um, to kind of facilitate remote learning. 
Um, and so, you know, I think all this is to say that not being as connected, having to deal with um, uncertainty and role confusion, these are things that uh, are contributing to what we see as, as really an uptick in mental health care needs for children. Um, so things like depression and anxiety are, are becoming uh, more prevalent in kids. Um, we're seeing them more often. Um, and this is even in kids who maybe have not faced these types of mental health challenges uh, in the past, too. Um, and another factor is that um, kids might not have access to some of the, the coping mechanisms and strategies that um, they used before the pandemic to try to uh, stave off uh, anxiety and depression. So you mentioned an uptick in depression and anxiety. How do we know that this is true, especially when it comes to that segment of the population of preteens and teens who maybe have never experienced emotions like that before? What kind of data are you seeing? Sure. Um, so I think in a, in a really sense, then we, we do know that the uh, numbers of the sheer volume of Google searches for symptoms of mental health disorders, um, treatment of mental health disorders, such as like antidepressant medications, uh, therapies, things like that. Um, and, and even the, the number of Google searches for suicide have really shot up during the pandemic. Um, there have been uh, a, a number of research studies that have pointed this out, including some work actually done up here at Dartmouth as well. Um, and I think if we, we look more specifically for the kids in our state, then the waiting list for inpatient um, pediatric psychiatric hospitalization has gone way up during the pandemic. Um, and so just a couple months ago, or, or really, I guess, uh, about a month and a half ago in February, then we saw that the number of, um, of children waiting in emergency departments around the state um, to be transferred to an inpatient uh, mental health unit that would um, then address those mental health concerns specifically uh, was, was over 50. Um, and so that is just really, really high. And, and frankly, you know, I, I think somewhat unac unacceptable and, and really sad for um, the children of our state to be in, in this situation where uh, mental health care needs are, are higher, but then access is much more difficult. Yeah. Now, what resources are out there for families, Patrick? Say, for example, a uh, mother or father is listening to this and says that really fits the description of what my child is going through. What resources are available for families here in New Hampshire when it comes to um, some of these issues? Really good question again, um, just because I, I think it's really important to have a good sense of the resources that are available if um, a need kind of unexpectedly arises. Um, but I think that a great, a great place to usually start is with um, a primary care physician. So um, if you, uh, if your family and, and your, your children maybe um, have a different primary care provider or pediatrician, that's typically a very good place to start because a primary care doctor will be somebody who um, typically can manage um, some mental health concerns, uh, even with medications, um, just like a psychiatrist might be able to, and for things that a primary care physician would not be comfortable managing, then they can um, refer out to um, other care if necessary. Um, and I think uh, another thing to point out too is that now that lots of um, great tools and, and information can be found um, online more readily um, than 
even having virtual medical appointments is, is mm-hmm. definitely something that's, that's possible, but um, your local community mental health care center um, is usually another good place to, to look as well, not just for um, the psychiatrist and, and therapist, psychologist that uh, are available through the community mental health center, but also for the uh, fantastic information that they typically put online for things like how to cope and, and also uh, warning signs to look out for, for uh, mental health care emergencies. Um, I think the last thing to talk about too, is just that our, our state's local um, national Alliance on mental illness, which is NAMI New Hampshire, um, our state's local chapter um, has been a really fantastic uh, source of information um, on their website with lots of tools and, and resources for, um, you know, just what's what's going on, what's the most up-to-date resource, uh, information for um, for recommendations. So these are things that that go beyond um, just the kind of bread and butter, uh, bread and butter mental health care resources. But then of course they, they also have lots of great um, tools for, for coping strategies and, and who to call in, in which situations. Now in preparation for today's interview, I was thinking about this. Because talking about mental health, we we all have mental health, right? Just like we all have physical health. And when somebody is physically injured, you know, it it seems pretty straightforward that you go to the doctor and you have the break, you know, fixed with with a cast or if you're bleeding, you get stitches. It's harder to talk about mental health. Um, for a variety of reasons. How do parents bridge that gap, especially with preteens and teens where they're at such a sensitive age that you don't want them to feel like there's something terribly wrong with them for having these very normal emotions during the course of a global pandemic? What would you recommend to parents and guardians that are out there and they're, they are noticing these things in their children, but they're not quite sure how to bring up that conversation? Right. Really good question. And I think this is something, um, again, that, you know, we, we've definitely struggled with uh, before the pandemic, but now with, with everything being being um, so much worse in terms of the mental health care needs that we're seeing that it's something that, um, you know, is, is somewhat accentuated by kind of the, the rigors of this pandemic. And so I think the, the place to start is, is just to, um, to have that conversation. Um, you know, I, I think that there are uh, very few bad ways to have that conversation. Um, but while you're having that conversation, if you're, you're being supportive um, and really validating your, your, uh, your child's feelings too, and, and just, you know, um, not arguing with them about the way that they feel, but then saying that, um, you know, I, I hear you. And um, what's more, I, I think a lot of other people are going through the same thing. So in that way, kind of normalizing um, their, their feelings as well. Um, because sometimes just to hear that you're not alone is really, really helpful. And um, we already talked about uh, social connectivity, but then also just um, as far as, as feeling isolated um, and, and feeling down or feeling anxious, then um, it's it's hard when we're not seeing people because sometimes you, you might feel like you're the only person in that boat. Um, but then to have uh, somebody that you trust, like your parents tell you that, you know, you're, you're not alone and um, it's, it's okay to feel this way can be really, really um, uplifting and, and sometimes encouraging, but then um, also just making sure that you're available too. And so um, I think it's, it's really important in the course of that conversation to just 
uh, tell your, your kids that, you know, anytime you want to talk, then, then I'm here. And even though um, I may not understand what you're going through, then, then I can really listen and, and help you um, kind of talk things out. How does a parent who's very busy working, uh, maybe outside of the home at this point, make, make time or make sure that their children understand that they truly are emotionally available? I think it's very easy to say, hey, I'm here for you. It's very different to actually have that door open for that opportunity for conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this really gets into that uh, role confusion that I mentioned before, too, just because um, I think now that a lot of people are, are working from home where possible or, or people are, are overall just spending more time at home, um, then, you know, you're, you're at home doing work, you're at home parenting, you're, you're at home um, uh, doing all these other things. Uh, and, and I think that that's not something that was uh, as typical um, before the pandemic. And so with that role confusion, then even though you're at home, then it can really, uh, you know, feel like you're you're maybe elsewhere as far as uh, where your attention is and, and things like that. Um, whereas home used to kind of be a sanctuary and and maybe where you would go to relax or unwind, and that's not happening as much. Um, so you know, I, I think that how you can ensure that um, you as a parent are having um, time for for your children to just talk to them and, and make sure they're doing okay, and and also um, you're just available to them as well, um, is, is really kind of scheduling out your day because when there is that role confusion, you're at home uh, working and you're at home um, and maybe learning or, or parenting, then then one of those roles kind of bleeds into the next and, and so on and so forth. But um, and, and usually when you go home, then that's again where you kind of leave everything else at the door and, and you're, you're present at home, but maybe not the case anymore. So if you're able to um, kind of schedule out your day in terms of these are the hours uh, where I'm going to be doing work. And then these are the hours where um, maybe I'm, I'm making time for uh, social connectivity and, and, you know, checking in with friends and family. Um, and then these are the hours to relax and unwind. Then um, that can be a really good time for, uh, for all of family to, to get together um, and just make sure that um, you know, the kids know that this is the time that we're supposed to be present and, and not doing other things um, because that, that used to be, I think, a, a lot more clearly delineated in, in the past, whereas uh, now that's not really the case. I was also able to speak with Chris Peterson of Londonderry Pediatrics. He has been practicing over 25 years and sees patients up until they are 22 years old. We were able to talk about what he is seeing at his practice, what advice he has for parents when it comes to having their children sleep and eat on a regular schedule, and the big question, whether or not he recommends vaccinating eligible teens over the age of 16. Have you seen any kind of physical side effects with the pandemic when it comes to maybe um, parents reporting anxiety in their children or even the children themselves reporting some physical effects like upset stomach, inability to sleep. I've heard some people having some of those issues throughout the course of the year uh, just due to the stress level associated with COVID-19. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the World Health Organization has said that the global level of anxiety has increased. And so it's not surprising that we're seeing this here in New Hampshire and London Dairy Dairy and in our area in general. 
Um, and absolutely, we're seeing way more kids with anxiety, um, more kids with mood issues that are coming in and either in counseling, if they can find it, which um, is a, uh, was a thin resource before the pandemic hit and is being stretched beyond its limits. Certainly a lot of kids with, with the anxiety and, um, you know, I, I think the, the sleeping issues, I think the collateral um, damage, if you will, with the hybrid, um, with asynchronous learning, kids going in for six o'clock, you know, getting up for six o'clock to go into school. And then the next day, they don't need to be necessarily zooming into a class or, or remoting into a classroom. So they're staying up and late the next, the night prior and getting up at 11 o'clock and their brain is, you know, doing this every single day or trying to figure out what the sleep cycle is. That certainly has, uh, has some impact on folks in their, in their overall well-being. Um, but the anxiety, absolutely. We're seeing more people um, with lower mood and with higher levels of anxiety that need, that need treatment. So, yep, keeping us, um, keeping us busy, unfortunately. And then on top of that, of course, the, just the, the COVID that we're seeing come through the office in kids. Um, luckily, uh, kids in this state, so there's a little over 85,000 cases of COVID uh, in the state and probably about 16% of them have been in that zero to 19 age group. And thankfully, the mortality and morbidity have been very low. Mortality is zero. Morbidity is a super low number um, of that percentage as well. So luckily, kids are faring through this very, very well um, from an illness standpoint, from an infectious disease standpoint. But it's, it is taking its mental health impact for sure. What do you recommend for parents? Because I know irregular sleep patterns or irregular eating patterns do tend to lead to some of those lower moods and heightened anxiety, um, especially for adults. And I'm, I'm sure even more for children and their, bo- their growing bodies. What do you recommend to parents if maybe their children are having some of these issues? Do you want them to get into more of a routine or structure when it comes to Absolutely. sleep? been eating. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, our brains, our brains have a circadian rhythm and, um, you know, the adult population, we like to go to bed around 10 PM and wake up around 6 AM. If that, that's kind of our natural sleep clock, um, adolescence, unfortunately, and we, we, we don't want to go down this path and get Chris Peterson up on his soapbox, but adolescents, their brains want to stay up until about midnight and sleep until 10 or 11. And Lord knows why um, we've known this for two decades. Lord knows why we're still having those kids get up at seven o'clock in the morning to go to school. Um, I just, it, it boggles my mind, but that has always been playing in the background as far as sleep deprivation and, and chronic sleep loss. Um, and there are tons of papers to suggest that if we just switch those times around in high schools, letting those kids start a little bit later, that they are safer, they do better, there's less mental health, there's more resiliency. Um, but having said that, I think trying to keep the sleep cycles as close every day as we can. Sure, kids like to sleep in on the weekend, but if you're letting your you know, child sleep till one, two o'clock in the afternoon, and then on Monday morning, they're getting up at 5.30 to get their stuff done before they go to school, well, that's probably not the best. Um, but you know, letting them sleep till nine, maybe 10 o'clock, um, that wouldn't be outside of the realm of, of reasonable I'm trying to keep them going to bed at a reasonable hour as well. Um, sleep in adolescence is hard to rein in, and, and it is because they're they're on the night shift. Um, they've got a little bit of that um, little bit of that vampire shift in them, um, and that age group for sure. 
Mm. How about eating and nutrition? What do you tell parents when it comes to making sure that their preteens and teens have the proper diet in order to make sure that they're, they're grounded and they're, and they're growing properly, but also that their brains get everything that they need. Sure. And I I think the boat has sailed. If, if you're having trouble with your adolescent eating well, then, then probably we should have started off back when they were toddlers and realizing that toddlers slow down in their, their appetite. And we just try to feed them good foods when they're, um, when they're hungry. But I think oftentimes as adults in, in the toddlerville, we say, oh my gosh, you're not eating. And I'm willing to now give you less than nutritional foods. And if, if we build that, that's then what adolescents are going to be reaching for as well. Having said that, I, given the fact that the body we know isn't waking up, the brain isn't waking up until probably 10 o'clock or so, I don't mind kids saying, I just can't eat breakfast. I, I just, my body just isn't in the place where I can eat breakfast at 6.30 in the morning, six o'clock in the morning before the bus comes or they get in the car to go to school. Having said that, I don't want them reaching for something that's not nutritional when they first are hungry. And so when they're in in class or between classes and they reach into their backpack and they grab a Snickers bar or a, you know, full of sugar um, and processed granola bar, that's that's not great eating. And and so making sure that if your adolescent is saying, I don't want to eat breakfast, we'll make sure that there's something good in their satchel when they go to reach in there um, so that they get some good nutrition. It's about whole foods for me. So, you know, it, I, I like to think about our background. When we came out of the caves, we didn't go out to the granola bar tree and pick a granola bar. <laughs> we, we found whole foods because that's that's what it was um, that was around. And really only over the last couple of hundred years have we shifted ourselves to more processed foods. Um, it had been there. It was all whole foods up until then. So there's a relatively recent shift and humans don't evolve that quickly. So we're still behind the eight ball, I think, as far as what is in the grocery aisles and, and what folks are are buying. Um, so looking, looking for as a whole of food as you can, looking for low process, low added sugar, that's really, the, those are the keys for me as far as trying to feed any age group um, from, you know, a six month old who's just starting to eat to somebody who's in their 90th, uh, 90th year. All right. Now, I'm, I'm sure that you've had a lot of questions where it's April 16th, vaccinations are rolling out and sure. children aged 16 and up are eligible for right. vaccine. For the Pfizer vaccine. Yep. 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 Okay. So what are you telling parents who have questions about whether or not their teen should get vaccinated, especially prior to the summer when they're going to want to be hanging out with their friends a lot more? Yeah. Yeah. They, this is a really hard issue. And so first of all, people who are vaccinated, if you look at the CDC, if, if you take guidance from the New Hampshire DHHS and Dr. Talbot, the message is if you've been vaccinated, you still need to wear your mask. You still need to distance six feet and you still cannot congregate in large uh, mass you know, congregations. So the rules really are kind of the same. I mean, certainly if you come in contact with somebody with COVID, there's a different story. Your travel may be a little bit different, but as far as interaction with other human beings, the vaccine is not a, a suit of armor. It doesn't let you fly with the gods. You're still walking with the mortals. And so, you know, I think that's a really important perspective for folks to have. It, it may allow a grandparent to come and see their grandchildren. So there's the 
the, the, what I like to call the grandparent rule that the CDC put out, that if you are fully vaccinated in two weeks after, you may go into a home, single family home and interact with folks without your mask on and not worry about them infecting you or you infecting them. And that's huge. I mean, when you think about from a family standpoint and a socialization standpoint, but it does not mean that you can go to um, whatever, a, you know, a movie and, and sit two feet away from somebody that you don't know with, with no mask on, that that just isn't, that still isn't okay. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a little uh, disappointed in the governor that he rolled back our mask mandate. Um, I know that many of the local schools have said, uh, it doesn't matter what the governor is saying, we're still saying, if you're gonna come to school, you need to be wearing a mask. And I would encourage anybody who's listening to this to wear your mask and social distance. If you look at the CDC's website, that is their message over and over and over again, that what mitigates this illness the very best, and we're still in the middle of a pandemic, people, what mitigates this the very best is social distancing and masks. You can't get away from that. So if you're gonna go into a store um, and there says, oh, you, you don't have to wear a mask, I would put one on anyways. There's nobody gonna say you, you can't wear one, I don't think. Mm. Really what the, the governor is saying is if you own a store, you don't have to have people wear a mask if they don't want to um, coming into your, your store or to your business. Again, schools across the board, as far as I know, they're saying you still need to wear a mask. Um, we were, uh, uh, the data that we have collected in New Hampshire and in the United States in general has said that in a controlled classroom, meaning six feet of three to six feet of distance and wearing masks, the risk of transmission is next to nothing in so much that if there is a positive uh, COVID positive child in that classroom, you don't need to quarantine any longer. That's huge. That's really saying that this mitigation is working. So yeah, we still need to be wearing masks and we still need to be socially distancing. So as far as the vaccine in kids 16 and over, and again, that's Pfizer only, the Moderna is 18 and over, uh, I really think that that is a family choice and a family decision. When families come to me and say, Chris, what should I do? It's hard because we've had a vaccine for just about a year, just under that. Um, it's EAU, it's emergency use authorization. Um, I'm not saying it's a bad vaccine. What I'm saying is I don't know. If you're asking me to help you make data-driven choices, I don't have data to drive my choices right now. So really it comes into the into the realm of what do you think is the best thing for your child as far as what will it mean for he or she this summer. So I think if he or she wants to go to a camp, they should still be wearing masks and still be doing social distancing. Does the vaccine matter? I'm not sure about that. Um, anytime you have an immunization program, you have to have a immunization that has less risk than the disease carries. In the 70s, we stopped immunizing with smallpox because the vaccine was causing more trouble than the actual disease was. Okay, that doesn't make sense. So let's pull that off. So with a illness in the zero to 19 population that has very low morbidity and zero mortality, you have to have a vaccine that's even safer than that. Um, and I'm not saying it's not safe. And I'm not saying that if somebody said, Chris, I'm gonna go do it, I wouldn't jump up and down and say, no, 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 don't, that's crazy. I'm just saying, I, I don't have data to drive that choice forward for you. As of April 22nd, youth between the ages of 10 and 19 accounted for 11,278 of the state's 92,911 total COVID-19 infections. 
eight of those youth had to be hospitalized and nobody under the age of 20 had died of COVID. Thank you for listening to the second podcast in the Community Alliance for Teen Safety's Wellness Connections series. We hope to cover many other aspects of how the pandemic has affected youth. If you would like to participate in upcoming episodes, please reach out. Contact information can be found at catsnh.org. Once again, my name is Kimberly Haas. Have a great day.